Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. Hi and welcome to the Exploring Hydrogen podcast. I'm Andy Marsland. Today I'm here with Phil Richardson, General Manager of New Energy Projects at Stemwell Corporation. We're going to be talking about all things hydrogen, so let's get started. Welcome, Phil. We were just talking before we went on air. That I think the last time you and I caught up was over video. I was, uh, I was pretty jealous because we were both in quarantine for separate reasons, and you just finished your quarantine period heading out on a run and I was uh, I was stuck in quarantine for another couple of days so yeah it's good to see you here in person. Thanks Andy yeah no great to be here. Welcome so as I understand Phil you're a Brisbaneite through and through went to school at St Peter's so I guess the first question is uh, do you have a, an Olympic gold medal and uh, for those of you who, who aren't from Brisbane St Peter's got a, an excellent reputation for churning out, particularly swimming Olympiads. So, uh, start off there. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, am not in the the class of uh, of Arnie when it comes to swimming. I'm pretty rubbish in the pool, actually. So, uh, yeah, I had a few mates that were in the swimming program at St Peter's, and uh, it does have a good reputation in that space. But no, I was all about cricket and rugby and a bit of basketball for me. So, I tried to stay away from the water. Yeah, good stuff. And then from there on to University of Queensland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I didn't um, initially go into economics and, and finance. I started out doing a Bachelor of Arts, actually, in English and History. So I didn't didn't have energy on my radar at that point. But um, I guess over time, I moved into that space. So uh, it's funny where you end up. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you certainly had a huge contribution to Queensland as, as a whole. And I think your career went down the lines of the Queensland government, including you were General Manager for Renewable Energy and Energy Pricing, I believe, before joining Stanwell. So, yeah, I mean, was that an intentional move to continue to focus on the Queensland sector? Yeah, definitely. So, I, um, over time, I guess I moved out of that space that I was in into, into energy and I started to realise that you know, economics is what makes the world go around. And so, I did some study in that space, moved into energy policy within Queensland government over a number of years and then moved into Stanwell because I realised that while economics makes the world go around, I think business is actually what gets things done a lot of the time. So um, I thought it was good to move into into that commercial space. And so I ended up in Stanwall three years ago. So look, it's been an interesting journey. And I suppose I've seen energy from both the policy and regulation side, as well as the now the commercial side as well. And I think it gives me that holistic understanding of the drivers that are out there in the market, because it isn't just about money driving it, it's about policy as well. And those things are all interacting at the moment. Yeah, such an exciting time for the industry, isn't it? And uh, yeah, perhaps you can talk about where Stanwell has come to as an organisation. And for those of you who aren't aware, Stanwell is one of the leading energy providers for Queensland, about 700 employees. And uh, over the last couple of years, the focus has been increasingly on new energy development. So, Yes, that's right. So 
we're very much a, a proud owner of, I guess, nine, nine coal-fired units that operate in the Queensland market. So we're a major provider of electricity into the Queensland market. And we have a retail business as well that services the large commercial and industrial customers. And as you said, we've really seen over the last few years, the market is changing and moving really rapidly. And so we've been increasingly looking at how can we diversify that portfolio and bring more renewable energy into the mix? Because that's what our customers are, are wanting. That's what they're demanding. And so that really forces us to try and change as well. So as we've gone along, we've started to bring in renewable energy. We've now got about 400 megawatts of renewables under contract, which will be coming in over the next couple of years. We've also got energy storage projects as well, including a large-scale battery at one of our sites that we've announced, and hydrogen as well, which we'll talk about today, but the third leg of our of our strategy at the moment. So, Yeah, and in terms of your energy inputs on the renewable side, what's the split between solar and wind there? We've gone mainly into wind at this stage, and that's because solar energy, as people would know, generates during the day, and there's a lot of solar coming into the Queensland market now, which means that effectively you're seeing those daytime, middle of the day prices are going very, very low and often negative. And so it makes solar a bit more challenging from a commercial perspective, and that's why wind, which tends to generate overnight, is providing a bit more value in the market and a bit more diversification. So we're going probably at least two-thirds or more into, into wind versus solar. Solar's still got a role and it's very cheap, but it's not generating the value in the market. So that's uh, that's why we're going for, for wind, a wind-dominant portfolio at this stage. Yeah. And how do you see hydrogen fitting into the energy mix as a whole for Stanwell primarily? But then if you can perhaps talk about more, more broadly, are we going to see a, a hydrogen economy? Yeah, I might start with, with the first part, that's all right, and talk about the overall economy. So I think... It goes back to what I said earlier about the difference between commercial and economic drivers and policy drivers. And I think if we were sitting here just talking about commercial and economic drivers, hydrogen wouldn't necessarily play a big role because it's not the cheapest form of energy. But what it does do is enable us to reduce carbon emissions across a whole range of sectors of the economy that wouldn't otherwise be able to have emissions reduced. So if you think about electrification and producing renewable electrons, we can decarbonise a whole range of sectors with renewable electrons. But there are certain sectors where we can't do that, where it's not possible to get renewable energy into those processes. And that's where hydrogen comes in. So it's a, it emits no, no carbon emissions at all when you combust it, and it can be produced through renewable energy. So it's those difficult to decarbonise sectors where hydrogen is going to play a big role. We're talking about things like heavy transport, remote power initially, and then as costs come down, moving into things like chemical feedstocks are using hydrogen to produce ammonia and other chemicals, and then ultimately having a role in power generation as well. So using hydrogen for fuel cell generating electricity, using them in turbines as well. So that's the the role we see it playing domestically in Australia. The other dimension of hydrogen is it's not just about sectors that are hard to decarbonise, it's countries that don't have access to renewable electrons. So For countries like Japan and Korea, at the moment, they don't have access to wind and solar. They haven't got enough land, and they've always imported their energy in from other sources. And so now they're looking at actually importing in renewable hydrogen to help them with decarbonising their economies. So something that might be difficult for Australia to justify economically, they actually see that as being one of the few options they have. And that's a big driver for this hydrogen, I guess, wave of interest that we're seeing is those countries and their need to, to reduce emissions and not having alternative options. Yes, yes. So perhaps we can delve a little bit more into your geographic focus then. So the production project is in Gladstone, and the concept is the hydrogen will be exported to primarily Japan. Is that right? 
That's right. At the moment, where the focus of the project is on export, however, we are looking at domestic focuses as well. So, as you said, we've got a project developing in Gladstone. We've secured some land there for the production facility, and then we're looking at shipping that hydrogen. And at the moment, our consortium or a group of companies we're working with is mainly from Japan. Over time, you know, we're open to other partnerships as well, but that's the focus at the moment. So Japan is probably the early, early mover on hydrogen. They're the country that's really pushed into that space the earliest. They've got funding now behind that as well, and they've got clear targets and policies in place. They've also got a lot of companies that have the right technology to make it happen. So that's why we're seeing Japan as the first mover. Yeah, fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about your joint venture partners, your consortium partners, how those came about? And did you proactively target those organisations in Japan or did you talk to Australian businesses as, as well in the early stages? We were lucky enough to take a trip over to Japan in the late latter part of 2019, which was just before COVID hit. So we made a, a snap decision. We thought, let's go over and find out what's happening in Japan and Korea. And fortunately, we were able to get over and meet a bunch of companies on that visit. And so that introduced us and helped us understand how soon and how big the opportunity was. So out of those meetings that we had over there, it led to a number of follow-up conversations. And probably the strongest of those was with Iwatani Corporation, who's our foundational partner. So we started working with them in 2020. And really then it's been about expanding out the consortium from there. So Iwatani are a key link in the hydrogen supply chain because they own about 70% of the current hydrogen market in Japan. They also have experience in all the key technologies that are involved as well and in distributing hydrogen. So they're a key player. And we've since expanded out the consortium. So we've added five additional companies with expertise across the supply chain to really round out the consortium. So they include Kawasaki Heavy Industries who have expertise in hydrogen liquefaction and shipping, Kansai Electric Power Company, who are a power generation company in Japan, who are planning to use the hydrogen in their power generation portfolio. Marabeni, who are one of the major trading houses in Japan, who also have an investment focus. And APA Group, who would be well known to most people as an Australian company with expertise in gas, but also a growing portfolio of renewable energy and hydrogen projects. So we feel that this consortium really provides us with that expertise across the whole supply chain um, all the partners are putting in funding towards a feasibility study, which just commenced about a month ago. And we're planning, if, if all goes well, we're planning to form appropriate joint venture arrangements from there to progress the project. Perhaps we could talk a bit more about the supply chain then. And it sounds like you've got the downstream side of things some way formulated. What challenges do you see on the upstream side of the supply chain? Do you have a challenges around the water? Availability, electrolyzer technology, or jobs, skills, cost reduction? What are your main challenges at the moment? Probably all of the above, I'd say. It's definitely a challenge, and there's a lot of challenging elements to it. I think the provision of renewable energy into the, the project is definitely a challenge, and it becomes more of a challenge as you go to larger scales. So to give you an idea, phase one of our project will probably require about 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar production. That's definitely achievable and it's there's the resources are there in that region to provide that energy. But as you move into the second phase of our project, the requirements for renewables increases a lot. And so it's about trying to find where are those good wind and solar resources and how can we partner with other companies to actually develop a pipeline of projects that can be available at the right time. So that's the challenge on the renewables front. 
on the water side, that is a challenge as well, although it's probably not as much of a challenge as, as people think it is. It's definitely, um, there's water resources in that region that can be provided to that project. And so we're working with the relevant agencies around ensuring that that water is available. Again, phase one of our project is probably achievable within the current water um, provision. And then phase two, it's about augmenting that so that we can bring enough water in to, to produce hydrogen. There's also options around processes to reduce the water requirements on the project. So we'll be considering all options such as desalination and also different technologies that can be used within the hydrogen production and liquefaction process to reduce water. In terms of other challenges, I think skills and jobs is definitely a challenge as well. So we see a huge opportunity for the region in terms of providing high quality, long-term jobs in this industry, but it's about training up the people and making sure they're available at the right time. So at the moment, we don't have any large-scale hydrogen projects operating around the world. And so while there's a lot of people out there with relevant skills, we're going to need to make sure that we can provide bridging courses to match up people who have, might have relevant skills to the exact skills that we need for the hydrogen industry. And so that will require a lot of lead time and we need to make sure that we start that process very soon. Which industries do you see the jobs coming from most likely? Well, the, the part of it that we're most interested in is definitely the electricity sector because that's where our current workforce is and we're seeing opportunities for our existing workforce to work on hydrogen. And so across our power station sites and our operational teams, there's a, we have a huge range of different engineering disciplines and trades. And it's fair to say that they probably cover most of the disciplines that we're going to need in the hydrogen industry. And so it's about, as I said earlier, identifying people that have the right relevant skills that we can then provide relevant bridging qualifications and training to ensure that they can participate in the, in the hydrogen market. So it's everything from electrical engineering will be required because you've got that huge energy input. The chemical process safety aspect will be very important as well because you've got a, a gas that needs to be handled very safely. And then there's a whole range of trades attached to that. There'll be civil engineering required There'll be so many different disciplines that will feed into that. So it's a huge opportunity. But as I said, we have to be prepared for it because it won't happen automatically. And the last thing we want is a, a shortage of skills or to not maximise that opportunity for the local workforce in particular. Yeah, fantastic. Phil, you mentioned before that phase one was 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar. Can you give the audience an idea of the land size that that would take? And also beyond that, where does Stanwell's remit finish and what activities will you be doing yourself? Will you be the asset owner? Yeah, so the I don't have all the numbers off the top of my head, but for a, a solar farm, you'd expect that each megawatt of installed capacity would be between three and four hectares of land requirement. And we're seeing that potentially out of that thousand megawatts, you might have say 300 megawatts of solar in that mix. And so you're looking at say 900 hectares or 900 or thousand hectares of, of space required for that solar generation. Sounds like a lot of space and it is a lot of space, but that's one thing we've got plenty of in Queensland is land area. And so it's just making sure we've got the probably more than land area, it's actually access to the electricity grid. That's the challenge. So being able to develop those projects in a location where we can either plug them straight into the hydrogen electrolyzer or plug them into the network to, to provide the plant. So that's the first question. And then, so at the moment, Stanwell sees our role at the upstream part of the supply chain. So definitely renewable energy. As I said earlier, we're already involved in renewable energy 
and we've contracted some projects. We're now looking at potentially owning and operating renewable energy as well. So I'd expect that of the renewable energy we're talking about, there'll be a component that will be contracted through power purchase agreements and some of it that we will own and operate ourselves. Then in terms of the electrolyzer, we are planning to own and operate that electrolyzer as well. And that's partly because we see the value as being really connected. So the, the need to balance the renewable energy provision and the electrolyzer and actually managing how we operate the electrolyzer, those two things are in inextricably linked. And so we have to probably have both of those within the same structure. So that's that's where we're targeting our involvement. And then we're seeing bringing on board other partners who can manage the midstream and downstream parts of the supply chain that we talked about earlier. Phil, I thought I'd hit you between the eyes with some curly questions. So what's your stance on green versus blue? And perhaps before you answer that, if you wouldn't mind giving the audience an overview of what is meant by green hydrogen versus blue hydrogen, and perhaps some of the other colours of hydrogen? Sure. Well, there's lots of different colours of hydrogen, and unfortunately there's no 100% agreed definition, but there is two of the most common ones are green and blue. So blue hydrogen refers to hydrogen that's produced through natural gas or coal and has the emissions reduced by capturing them, and so using um, carbon capture and storage on the back end of that process to reduce the carbon emissions. So that's blue hydrogen. And then green hydrogen refers to hydrogen that's produced through renewable energy and electrolysis. So that's emissions-free hydrogen. So those are the two colours that are being talked about the most. There are other colours as well. So existing hydrogen is mainly produced, is referred to as brown or grey hydrogen, and that's hydrogen that is produced by coal or gas without any capturing of the carbon emissions. So it's quite carbon intensive. And that's the way that most hydrogen is produced at the moment. Yeah. So in terms of where we see blue versus green hydrogen, we primarily see the market demand being in green hydrogen. That's the space that we're very focused on. As a company, we have previously looked at carbon capture and storage, but that's not a focus for us now. And the customers or the potential off-takers we're working with are very focused on renewable hydrogen, which is the term that we use for the green hydrogen, renewable hydrogen. And so we think that's the long-term future of hydrogen is in renewable hydrogen. And that's the comparative advantage or the strength that Queensland has is in renewable energy. So why wouldn't we capitalise on that and also ensure that we're producing hydrogen that has a zero emissions footprint? Oh, absolutely. The sunshine state, we've got to live up to our name and ship the sunshine. Absolutely right. <laughs> so you mentioned about carbon capture. What other things have you tried that haven't worked so far or that don't align to Stanwell's either risk profile or direction that they want to move as an organisation? We've looked at a lot of different technologies and we're continuing to consider different options and we're trying not to close off options. And so we've probably got a case of never say never on most of these things. But Perhaps one example of a technology that we think is going to be challenging at very large scale would be biomass. And so that's using a, a fuel product that is usually a, a byproduct of another process. Um, so it might be sugarcane, big gas, for example, and putting that into uh, combusting that in a power generator. So that's something we have considered. We've also considered, um, and we are continuing to consider, co-combusting those products into our existing coal-fired power stations. That does give you a reduction in carbon emissions because the total carbon emissions of that biomass product are lower because you're basically taking an existing product and combusting it. But we're not convinced that there's a customer appetite to buy energy that is based on biomass. 
And we think that renewable energy is definitely where the customer appetite is mainly focused. So again, not ruling out bioenergy. It's still part of our strategy. It's still something we're looking at, but we don't see it providing a major energy source for Stanwell into the future. Government-owned corporations such as Stanwell, I mean, worldwide, I think generally they've got a bit of a reputation about being quite slow moving, but it sounds like Stanwell's got some interesting and exciting opportunities ahead of it. How would you go with navigating between the large corporate bureaucracy to making some of these exciting projects happen and get them getting the wheels turning moving forward? Yeah, one of the great things about a bureaucracy is that almost every organisation has it. And so while there's definitely some quirks about being a government-owned corporation, it's, it's not that different to... Uh, some of the other organisations that might be privately owned or, or ASX listed, there's a lot of similarities. And a lot of that comes down to a genuine desire to actually manage risk and ensure that we are providing shareholder returns and not wasting shareholders' money. So a lot of those things are understandable and justifiable. And I think that from my perspective, we've been given a lot of support by the business to actually consider a range of different opportunities and to, to innovate and to try different things. And so that's been really great. And I think that in a lot of ways as a company, we've actually got a sharper focus on the ESG or environmental, social and governance considerations that are now being adopted by a lot of companies. That's part of our DNA as a government corporation. And so what that encourages us to do is to look at different dimensions of projects. So look at the commercial potential of the project, but also look at the community benefits of the project, look at the social license attached to it. Those are all things that we do routinely as part of our projects. And I think that in the new future we're moving into, that actually gives us a, a bit of an advantage because we're already there and, and our shareholders already expect us to take that lens on things. Yeah, fantastic. The people of Gladstone, I think, have got a bit of a hangover, should we say, from the boom and bust cycle that we saw in the LNG industry and just in consideration to the social license. So we saw a large number of fly-in, fly-out workers. The house prices, rental prices went up pretty significantly in the region. There was competing for for labour, for the rentals in there that forced those house prices up. A lot of lessons that could be learned from that cycle of probably four or five years through that construction period. What have Stanwell started to think about from that social license aspect? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And it's been raised, that experience with the LNG industry, I think is important for us to consider across a whole range of areas. And so it's the areas you've talked about and also other areas like the way that infrastructure was or wasn't shared and maybe duplicated in some of those projects. On the social license and the community aspect, I think one thing we've tried to do is tap into the knowledge of a lot of the local governments and the companies and the associations in that region, who people who've been there through that whole process, to actually bring them together and to try and understand where they see some of the opportunities to do things differently this time. And so we are working with a group of um, local governments and other companies that are working in the area and other agencies like port and water entities, working with all those types of organisations to try and understand those, those opportunities and how we can do things differently and understand where we can work together. So that's the other, I think the biggest learning, if you like, from that LNG experience was working together and looking at partnerships and collaboration. It's hard when you've got competing commercial interests, but there's always areas of common, common ground. And we found talking to other proponents in the region, there are a lot of areas of common interest where we can work together. So things like community education, it makes total sense for us to work 
even with a competitor, to work together on community education. Jobs and skills, same with that. Common user infrastructure, they're all areas where it makes sense for us to work together, even where we have different commercial interests. So there's some of the things we're doing. I think some of the practical details we're still working on and we'll need to roll that over the next few years, but I think we've made a decent start in terms of having the right relationships and the right structures in place. Yes, yeah. And that's certainly what I've seen as well from the cluster networks that I've been involved with. It seems like this time around, there's so much more willingness for that collaboration that let's all work together to make the pie bigger for Australia. And there's going to be more in it for everyone rather than trying to ring fence um, their own piece of the pie and what turned out to be a lot of duplication of of resources that happened in, in Gladstone for the previous LNG boom. Yeah, and that's right. And the other thing about hydrogen is that the commercially or economically, it's quite challenging. And so we can't afford to duplicate infrastructure. We can't afford to have higher costs. Whereas in the LNG case, the commercial case was fairly compelling, I think, for those companies. And so they moved ahead quickly. They were willing to duplicate and wear some higher costs because the commercial side was so attractive. Whereas for hydrogen, it's more challenging. We've got to do things smarter to, to get this industry up. On the transportation side, what mechanism medium would you envisage the hydrogen being exported in? Are we talking ammonia or hydrogen, compressed hydrogen gas or liquid hydrogen? In our particular case, it's it's liquefied hydrogen, but we're not saying that that is the only answer by any means. We think that all those other mechanisms that you talked about will have a role potentially as well. And particularly ammonia is definitely quite attractive because it's the handling of and transportation of ammonia is already pretty well established and it can be used in a range of processes as ammonia. So, for example, the Japanese are talking about co-firing ammonia into their existing coal-fired power stations to reduce their emissions. So that can be done and there's trials happening on that now. Liquefaction is not simple, it's not easy, and so we understand that as well. And so that's there needs to be more technology development in that space in order to do it at large scales. And then the other mechanisms you've talked about in terms of there's a a technology called methylcyclohexane or MCH, and that's another thing that people are trialling that may prove to be cost-effective as well. And then you've got compressed hydrogen, which is probably quite challenging. It doesn't, it's not very energy dense, but it might be applicable in some situations. So we're definitely not saying that we're not trying to pick a single winner here, but the partners that we're working with on this project, it's about liquefied hydrogen. So the benefits of the energy density offset or more than offset the additional cost to get into a liquid form? Yes, in some applications. So if you are looking to use hydrogen in the form of ammonia, then that would be the more cost-effective route than liquefied hydrogen. But if you need high-purity hydrogen for your applications and you need to use it as hydrogen, then we believe that longer-term liquefaction will prove to be the most cost-effective route. In the case of ammonia, the issue with ammonia is if you want to turn it back into hydrogen, you need to crack it at the other end, in in the uh, the Japanese end, for example, and that's energy-intensive. That will add extra costs. And then you've got the issue around purity. So both pathways have got their challenges and potentially both pathways will be complementary. What do you think needs to happen to allow Australia's hydrogen decarbonisation ambitions to be realised? So, for example, do you see any policy changes, any funding or taxation that needs to be changed to allow for some more of these hydrogen projects to go ahead? It's a difficult question at the moment because I think there's not a a strong commercial case for a lot of companies to move into hydrogen at the moment. 
Partly that's because of the cost of hydrogen, but it's also because the incentive to reduce emissions is not always there either. And so while there is pressure from customers, there's pressure from shareholders, it's not providing a very clear price signal for customers to reduce their emissions. We know that in Australia, we've, we've decided to not go down the route of implicitly or explicitly pricing carbon. And so I guess at the moment, what we're looking at is a range of other policy mechanisms that will increase the attractiveness of hydrogen. And so mainly that's things like technology funding is where we see the, the opportunity and the need. And so we've worked a lot with the Australian Renewable Energy Agency arena in the past. They've got a strong focus on providing funding to hydrogen projects to help scale up the technology and to bring down the cost of it as well. And that role that Arena is playing needs to increase over time and needs to be targeted at larger and larger projects so that we can go from 10 megawatt scale electrolyzers, which is what we're doing at the moment, to 20, 30, 40 megawatts, and then eventually to hundreds of megawatts, which is the scale that our export project's looking at. So to get there, we do need, we will need agencies like Arena providing support at each step of that process to, to help bring those costs down. Good thing is they've done it before. So they did it with large-scale solar. It was probably only five years ago that people were saying large-scale solar, it's too expensive. And now people are saying large-scale solar is the cheapest form of electrons for new build technology, and that's absolutely true. Yeah, and the costs have come down, I think, about 80%, something like that, in the solar. Yeah, at least, if not more, in the last... On costs, where do things sit at the moment to produce green hydrogen? What's the cost per kilogram and where do we need to get to? The cost at the moment, I think most industry sources say that it's between 6 to $8 per kilogram to produce green hydrogen. And the long-term target for Australia is to produce it at $2 per kilogram. So there's a, there's a fair gap there. But we think that along the way there will be various steps. We can't go to $2 a kilo in the next five years maybe not even in the next 10 years, but in the next 15 to 20 years, we need to get there. So what are the steps along that journey? And I think it will coincide with that scaling up of the technology as well. We need to, each time we scale up the technology, we need to be looking for that lower price point. And again, that's what we did with large-scale solar. Yes, yeah, completely agree with you. We're certainly going to get there. And people have spoken about the kind of chicken or egg situation that you need the demand side to be there, to line up, and also the uh, the supply. And sounds like Stanwell's getting there from the supply side of things and also the demand. So I'm sure things will keep heading in, in the right direction and as, uh, as we progress and, as we say, we'll move down the cost curve over the next few years. From a personal level, if you can take off your, your Stanwell hat, what does the future look like for the industry or what do you hope to see for hydrogen and decarbonisation across Australia? I hope that we will be able to reach that decarbonisation goal that we all know we need to do in a way that brings communities and workforces along on that journey, make sure that people aren't left behind, and also make sure that we use our resources and our, our money wisely. And so hopefully we can avoid going down blind alleys in terms of different technologies. And I think to me, hydrogen is a great option because it is so diverse and it is so flexible that it can be applied across multiple different sectors. So it's not about a silver bullet that can solve a single problem, is the only solution to a single problem. It's about a flexible energy carrier that can be applied across a whole range of technologies. And that's why it's a smart thing for us to 
really look at hydrogen very closely and to give that a go. But it's not the only option. And so we might find that in, in 10 years' time, we need to actually activate other options. And that's why I think that option, of the idea of having a technology investment approach of looking at a portfolio of different technologies is going to be really important. So I hope that's where we can get to is, is make sure that we leave the planet a better place than where we got it and that we can, as I said, bring communities and workforces along for the journey and use our money wisely in the process. Yeah, I think that's why well, you and I are both in, involved in the sector. So we see the legacy that we can leave for our children, our children's children, and do something for the state of Queensland and, and Australia. And I think it's not going to be all plain sailing. It's not going to be easy. We're not going to hit home run every single time, but it's how we move through those the learning curve, uh, work out what technologies work well, those that don't, and Hydrogen, I think, is one of those many options of how we get to zero carbon. And what do you think success looks like for you as an individual? And I guess, you know, five years' time from now, what do you hope to see from Stemwell? I guess for me personally, I enjoy taking on a, a new challenge. I love working on new and interesting technologies and, and projects. And so I tend to like to have that variety and so over my career, I've been involved in a lot of different roles. I've done a lot of different projects. I don't tend to stay with the same thing for 20 years. So I don't necessarily see myself as a, as a hydrogen expert or someone who will stay in that channel exclusively. I want to keep, for me, success looks like continuing to be across a whole range of different areas of that energy transition and the energy technology mix. And so I really, that's what I want to do is just keep being involved in the industry, be part of that journey that we talked about and contributing something towards those that economic benefit and the community benefit that we see when when people do have meaningful, well-paid jobs and when communities do have industries that can help sustain them and where we do have a sustainable environment. Like those are all things that for those local communities are really tangible and real. And so I'd love to be able to contribute to that and uh, and see that come to fruition in places like central Queensland and other regions in, in Queensland. So for me... I think Stanwall, that links to the purpose of Stanwall, which is really about, we talk about providing energy solutions to our customers, and we're also about providing an energy economy for our communities as well. We're part of that local economy. And so in the future, we want to be able to keep doing that. We already do that for our two local communities right now. In the future, we want to be able to keep doing that as we move into things like hydrogen and renewables. Why is there such unprecedented hype in the hydrogen sector at the moment? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing, I keep thinking we're going to reach the, the peak of the hydrogen hype cycle, <laughs> but it just keeps going more and more hypey. I think there's a few reasons. I think that decarbonisation is becoming much more urgent challenge for the global economy. And when we look at that challenge, there are some sectors of our economy that are going to be quite difficult to decarbonise using established technologies. And so, we're an electricity company, and so we're very keen to see electrification of the economy. We're very keen to see renewable energy decarbonise lots of different sectors, and that's happening a lot. But there are still some sectors that are very going to be very hard to abate emissions. And so we look at things like heavy transport and shipping and aviation. There are certain industrial processes like steelmaking where it's very hard to produce emissions as well. And so electrification is not always going to be an option for those sectors. There's also a geographical challenge for some countries where they don't have access to renewable energy. So Japan and Korea, they've always had to import their energy resources and they don't have enough land 
to build solar and wind. So hydrogen is going to be a key option for those economies and also for those hard-to-abate sectors that we talked about. So I don't believe that hydrogen is the answer to all the world's decarbonisation problems, but it certainly seems to have a role. It's just about making sure that we pick the right applications for hydrogen. Yeah, on the aviation sector, I mean, yeah, we, we talk what the other options, the potential uh, battery, but as, uh, as we both know, the larger the vehicle, the heavier the battery is going to be required, and particularly something like aviation, you're never going to get, get it off the ground, are you? That's right. I think the size and the weight of batteries makes it a challenging options for things like aviation, but also for things like trucking as well. You imagine towing around a, a B-double and then having an extra trailer with a battery on it. Imagine the extra weight that you'd be putting on the road to use a battery. So we think that electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles are going to be the key option for passenger vehicles, and that seems to be an industry consensus view. The interesting thing with that, though, is that, again, in countries like Japan and Korea, if they're going to use battery electric vehicles, they need electricity and they need green electricity, and they don't have access to it. And so fuel cell electric vehicles could play a stronger role in some of those economies as well, where they're going to be reliant on hydrogen for a whole range of broader applications. Same thing for power generation. In Australia, we don't see hydrogen playing a strong role in power generation for the next 10 to 15 years. But in countries like, again, Japan and Korea, it's going to be an option for power generation. So it's actually, it's quite a nuanced picture. And there's a lot of very simplistic commentary about hydrogen is definitely going to work in this sector and definitely not going to work in that sector. Well, it's going to depend on the context. Phil, any asks for the audience or any other information that you'd like to share? Yeah, I guess in terms of if people are listening and they're, they're interested in, in the hydrogen space and they feel like they might have something to contribute in terms of the business that they operate or as a supplier or even as an individual, we're always keen to engage with, with people across that hydrogen supply chain and even the potential hydrogen industry that we can build as well. Because I understand, similar to us, a lot of other companies or people are looking at this opportunity and wondering what it means for them. And so if you're in that space, keen to hear from you. We've got a lot of a lot of things on at the moment, but we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We try and meet with a, a broad range of people and keep those contacts and keep the network as broad as we can. So by all means, get in touch and also check out our webpage, stanwall.com, and also our LinkedIn feed as well. We, we put regular updates about our projects onto those platforms. So check it out. Fantastic. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for your time and detailed conversation that we've been through today. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience learned a lot. It sounds like Stanwell's got some exciting things ahead of it. So wish you all the best in your hydrogen and new energy endeavours. Right. Thanks a lot for having me, Andy. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the hydrogen journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Thank you.